Well, good morning, friends. Again, it's good to be with you. And this morning, we are kicking off a four-week series called Transformed. And last week, I said that I believe that this four-week series is the most important strategic series in the future of our church. And so I'm so glad that you're here this morning. If you're watching us online, we're really glad that you're with us that way. Isn't it hard to believe that there was actually a time before reality television shows? I mean, I can barely remember, but, it's, but it existed. Times before we were all addicted to these uh, sort of guilty pleasure reality television shows. And I don't know if you're willing to admit that you like one or two reality TV shows, but I'm going to admit to you uh, this morning that I like a few. And most of them are on the Food Network. Uh, and uh, I, love, uh, I love all the cooking competitions. And I love this show called uh, Restaurant Impossible. Restaurant Impossible is with a chef named Robert Irvine. And interestingly enough, the last episode was a restaurant in Geneva. So not that far away. So we could go check it out and see how they're doing. Um, but in this show, he walks into a restaurant that is struggling, that is producing terrible food, that is losing money month after month. And he overhauls it in 48 hours. And uh, my wife is not as much into that, but she likes shows like Hoarders. Anybody out there like Hoarders? It's this show where like people get a lot of help because of their inability to sort through their stuff. I have a hard time watching it, but my, my wife loves it. And even though those are two very different shows, they're really about the same thing, which is transformation. In one case, it's the transformation of a struggling restaurant to a successful restaurant. In the other case, it's the transformation of somebody who is struggling to live a healthy life into a place of some level of organization and being able to function. And, and, and I think what I love about those shows is I like the struggle and I like the back and forth, but I love the end. <laughs> I love in Restaurant Impossible when they bring the owners in and they got their eyes closed and they're going to reveal the new restaurant, which they've just redone over the last 48 hours. It looks, and then they open their eyes, and I love that moment. Sometimes I get emotional because I just, I'm so happy for them, and I'm so drawn in by it. And, and they look at it, and they're like, oh, my goodness. It's like I can't even believe I'm in the same place. We love stories of transformation. We love seeing change. And this series is all about the most important type of transformation that you and I will ever experience. More important than a restaurant making better food, which I'm all for. All restaurants should make better food. More important than getting your house in order. This is heart transformation that we're talking about. And our vision statement as a church, which you've hopefully heard time and time again, is that we want to see gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Gospel transformation, radical change, dramatic change, not just in our behavior, not just in our schedules, not just in the way in which we live, but in our hearts, in our very nature, and who we are, and what we love, and how we feel about the things that matter most. Gospel transformation in every area of our lives, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would be willing to admit this morning that there's still a few areas of your life where you could use a little gospel transformation? You could use a little more of the life of Jesus that we sang about. Every area of our lives, and it can't stop there, every life in our area. Because what God does in us, he intends to do through us. This is our vision. So what is gospel transformation? And over the next four weeks in this series, Transform, that's one of the questions we're going to answer. What is gospel transformation? Number two, how does gospel transformation happen? And then lastly, how do you fit in 
to all of this? What's your part to play in what Jesus is doing right here at Trinity? And so we're going to start this morning simply by answering the question, what is the gospel? And we're going to look at Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Many people consider this to be his masterpiece. It's certainly his most thorough unpacking of the gospel. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to read two verses, verses 16 and 17. I'm reading to you from the NLT. And Paul wrote these words. He said, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. Now, good news about Christ, other translations say, For I am not ashamed about this gospel. Because gospel literally means good news. I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God made us right in his sight, and this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So there's three things I want us to learn together this morning about the gospel. And the first thing is this, that the gospel is not just information. It's not just information. This past Thursday night, I was hanging out with some young guys from the church. We get together, and we're we're in a discipleship group together. And we were talking about growing up, I'm 42, I remember growing up before the internet, and we were talking about encyclopedias. Anybody remember encyclopedias? Like, you know, these massive books on the shelf that you would just pull out every now and then. And the, and the irony about them is that the moment you got them, they were outdated, they were obsolete, but you didn't have enough money to get another set of encyclopedias for another eight years. For so eight years, you were behind everything. You didn't know what was going on. And one of the guys in our group was kind of joking, saying, like, my family actually, because of how much it costs to get a good set of encyclopedias, we would get them in, 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 in installments. So we didn't get the whole set. And so, you know, we, we'd have only the first half of the encyclopedia. So he's like, when my high school teacher would assign a topic for a, for a paper, I would just hope that the topic was between the letters A and F, because otherwise I, I had nothing for them. How much has our world changed since then? And there is not a single question that you could come up with this morning that you couldn't find multiple answers to before you leave this building because of what you're holding in your hand or what's sitting in your purse. These phones that we, you know, 97% of Americans now carry around cell phones. I'm not sure what the other 3% are doing, but 97% are carrying around cell phones. 85% of those are smartphones. And this statistic is two years old, so I'm sure it's much more than this now. The average American looks at their phone 97 times a day. Now, I'll be honest with you, when I read that, I thought, that feels low to me. That feels low to me, because I, I shouldn't speak, but I've been around some people who look at their phone 97 times an hour, right? Uh, but the average is 97 times a day. And, and the phones that we hold in our hands and sit in our pockets, it has, your, that, that has more power as a computer than the computers that launched Apollo 11 into space. And not just a little more power, millions of times more power in your phone than the computers that sent Apollo 11 into orbit. And when I came across that fact, I looked at my phone, and we had a little heart-to-heart. I was like, you're a little underachiever, aren't you? Like, what are you doing? What do we do with these smartphones? We, what do we use all this computer power to do? To argue with each other on Facebook about politics, to, to edit pictures of our own face, and to watch videos of kittens. Like, that's like the majority of what we do with these unbelievable computers. We have so much information at our fingertips. We're actually beyond the age of information at this point. But let me ask you this. Has all this information made us a kinder society? Has it made us more generous, more loving? Information is fine, and information is not the problem, but it certainly is not the solution. 
And the gospel is not just information. Listen, information can't change the human heart. Information can't change human nature. Information cannot deal with your biggest problem. Information can't even change our bad behavior. Listen, when I'm gaining weight, it's not because I don't have information. <laughs> the information has never changed. I know what I need to do. Eat less, exercise more. It's pretty simple. When people get caught into bad habits and bad cycles, it's not because they don't know that those substances are bad for them and that those behaviors are bad for them. It's not an information issue. <clears throat> and the gospel is not just information. Paul says it so clearly in verse 16. Look at this again. He says, the, good, the gospel, the good news about Christ, it is not just information about God, but it's the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. The gospel is not just information, it's power. And it has within it, the good news of Jesus has within it the power to save our very souls and to change every area of our lives. And when we look at the life of Jesus and some of his interactions with individuals, we see that Jesus didn't just come with information, he came with power. When he came across a man in the Gerasenes, a demoniac who was possessed by legions of demons, and he had no freedom in his life, and he was, he was, they tried to chain him up, and he'd break the chains, and he was a naked guy running around cutting himself and terrorizing a, a, a community. Jesus didn't come up with just information and say, you know, let me give you some information about demons and why they're bad for you. Let me, let me just tell you, not everybody's a fan of your whole naked fashion look. So let's, why don't we try some clothes on? Jesus didn't come with information. He came with the sort of power that this man needed to be set free and to set, be set in his right mind. The gospel is not just information. It's the sort of power that can change us. When Jesus came across a man who had climbed up a tree to get a better look at him, a Jewish tax collector, a hated Jewish tax collector named Zacchaeus, Jesus didn't, didn't just say to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I got to tell you, the things you're doing are wrong. Zacchaeus knew what he was doing was wrong. He didn't need information. He needed a powerful encounter with a loving Jesus who said, Zacchaeus, come on down. Let's have dinner together. I'm coming to your house, which was a sign of radical acceptance and relationship. The centurion at the cross didn't need information about Jesus' death. He just needed to see what happened when Jesus died. And Peter and the disciples and the women who followed Jesus, none of it was just information. It was an encounter with Jesus within which there was power to change our lives. The danger of reducing the gospel to just information is twofold. Number one, you can get information from a distance, but you can't get the gospel from a distance. Jesus didn't sit up and, if all we needed was information, Jesus could have just written it down and sent it to us. He could have just got this massive megaphone and just yelled down to us, here's all the information you need. Now get it, get to work. But he came, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and he moved in the neighborhood, and he embraced the human experience. And when he walked on this earth as a human, he didn't do it from a distance. He wasn't a guru that sat on top of a mountain and said, come up to me for information. He sat at tables with sinners and drunkards and gluttons and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he called losers and outsiders, and he loved them, not from a distance, but close. The gospel is not just information. The other danger of reducing the gospel to information is that it simply becomes something for you to know so that you can prove how smart you are, superior to other people, so that you can win theological arguments. That's not what this is about. There's a lot of people who have a lot of head knowledge about the Bible, but their hearts have not been changed by it. And God save us from that. The gospel is not just information. Secondly, the gospel is not just instruction. You know, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The gospel is not about what you must do to be saved. The gospel is about what has been done to save you. 
And, and Paul makes it so clear. Look at the beginning of verse 17. He says that this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. How many of you are so grateful this morning that this doesn't read, the gospel tells us how to make ourselves right in God's sight? But so many people believe that is the Christian message. Follow these rules, go to church, give your money, be a good person, and maybe God will let you into heaven someday. That is a false gospel. That's not the gospel. That is a works-based gospel that you'll never, it'll never save you and it will never free you. But the gospel tells us what God did to make us right. The gospel tells us that everything that God requires, he first provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not achieve righteousness. The gospel is receive righteousness. But when we forget this, we become a slave to manufacturing our own goodness and managing our own badness. You ever been there? You ever felt that way? Where you're just bouncing between these two things, trying to manufacture righteousness, read your Bibles, be a good person, do good things, manage your own sin, say these words less, watch that channel less, right? And we kind of go back and forth. And you know what that is? It's exhausting. The gospel is not manufacture your goodness and manage your badness. The gospel is receive Jesus' goodness. See, well, let me give this example. If I had to make the best steak ever, and believe me, I will spend the rest of my life trying, but if I had to make the best steak ever and, and I had Gordon Ramsay, the famous British chef, at my disposal, and I had the option of him either instructing me, you know, I, I've watched some of his shows. I've heard what his instructions sound like. I don't need to be cussed out and called a donkey over and over. So, you know, if he's there instructing me, I might make a better steak than I would have made if he wasn't there because he knows a lot. But the problem is I'm still the one doing it, and I'm not a trained professional chef like he is. But what if my other option was he can make the steak for me? He cooks the steak, and then it counts as my steak. See, Jesus didn't come to earth primarily to be your instructor or your example, although he's wonderful at both of those things. Jesus came to earth primarily to be your substitute. What he did in your place is what saves you. He didn't say, here's what you live like me, do this like me. Should we? Yes. Will we? By God's grace. But ultimately, the heart of the gospel is not Jesus is your example. The heart of the gospel is Jesus is your substitute and what he did for you, which you can never do for yourself. Listen, if Jesus only came to be an example, then he didn't need to live perfect. He only needed to live better than the best of us. Why did he need to live perfect? Because you and I desperately need a perfect righteousness to be accepted by the Father. We can't manufacture that, but we can receive it. That's the gospel. The gospel is not just instruction. The video that we watched was such a, so helpful. I hope you enjoyed that. That idea of uh, these heralds, they called them evangelists. That word evangelist, evangelion, is the Greek word from which we get the word gospel. And these guys would be out on the battlefront and the king would have taken the army out to fight for the freedom of the people who were still inside the walls of the city, hidden in the town, hoping against hope that they would be okay because they knew if the king lost, they would become slaves to these, new, these different people. And the heralds would run back or race back on their horses to the towns and the villages and they would come flying in and they would say, the king has won, the king has won. And what they were yelling was gospel, gospel, good news. And that good news had the power to change their emotions and their heart and their hopes and their dreams and it set them free. And two things would happen when those heralds would come back. They would immediately break into celebration about the king's victory, but also preparation for the king's return. Celebration of his victory and preparation of his return. And that's the entirety of the Christian life. 
We've received the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus has won in our place. So how do we respond? We celebrate his victory and we prepare for his return. And you can't do one or the other. You've got to have both. Because some people just want to celebrate his victory, but they don't want to prepare for his return, which means they don't want to be changed. They don't want to live by kingdom values. They want to continue to live by their values. They're thankful for what Jesus did, but they're not preparing for his return. And then there are other people who are fastidiously working so hard to prepare for his return, but they're doing it without any understanding of what he's already won for them. Our work is not to secure a victory. Our work is to celebrate a victory, what's been done, and then to prepare for the return of our king. The gospel is not just instruction. If the gospel is just a bunch of rules for us to follow, then when you follow them, you'll feel prideful and superior to people who don't follow them as well as you. When you don't follow them, you'll feel shame and never feel like you've been good enough. There's no rest if the gospel is just instruction. And here's the other thing. If the gospel is just instruction, then there's no growing gratitude for Jesus. Because the more impressed you are with yourself and your ability to keep the instructions, the less impressed you are with what Jesus had to do to save you. But a mature, growing believer who understands the gospel, listen, is growing less and less impressed with him or herself and more and more impressed with Jesus. And what an important question for each of us to ask ourselves this morning is, am I more grateful for what Jesus did today than I was when I first believed? Am I less impressed with myself today than I was when I first believed? That's why towards the end of his life, we read it, I think, this past week as a church. We're going through the New Testament together. We read either in Titus or Timothy, I forget where it is, where Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the worst sinner. Paul was not literally saying he was the worst sinner, but what Paul was saying this, this is near the end of his life. Paul is saying, as I grow in my faith, as I see Jesus more clearly, I realize I become more aware of how much I need him. And what a miracle he is, it is that he would save me, that he would find me. The gospel is not just information. The gospel is not just instruction. And lastly, the gospel is not just an introduction. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. Tim Keller says it this way. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. It doesn't just get us in. It grows us up. And Paul makes it super clear here in this verse, doesn't it? He says this in the second half of verse 17. This, the work within us, us being made right by God, is accomplished from start to finish by faith. Not at the start by faith and then we finish it through works. Not start because of what God has done and then finish because of what we have done. From start to finish, it's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. The life that we sang about this morning when we sang come alive in Jesus, that life is through faith. It's possible because of faith only. The gospel is not just an introduction. The gospel is not something that we graduate from. We do not move on from it. We do not advance past it. We do not leave it behind. The gospel is our faithful companion every step of the way. Imagine that I was going to get my family together for a road trip and we get in the car and we're going, to take a, we're going to drive wherever, Boston, New York City. And, and my wife says, are we good on gas? Do we have enough gas? I said, no, we don't have enough gas, but we got enough to get started. <laughs> we got enough to get started. She would say, that sounds like the stupidest thing you've ever said. <laughs> Go fill this car up with gas. 
Many Christians try to live that way. The gospel kind of got them started, but they're not going back to the gospel. They're not preaching the gospel to their heart. They're not remembering the gospel. They're not rehearsing the gospel. They're not submerging their hearts daily into the truth of the gospel. The most important daily task that any Christian has is to preach the gospel to themselves. Remind them of who Jesus is. Because the reason we sin is because we forget the gospel. The reason we sin is because at that moment, something or someone else is our source of good news instead of the true gospel. And we see it in Paul's writings. And Paul writes letters to the churches like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Corinthians, and so on and so forth. He, he, he's writing to believers. Listen, he's writing to believers who already know the gospel, but he's reminding them of the gospel. And the rhythm of his epistles are almost always the same, especially the shorter ones. First few chapters, gospel reminders. Just slamming them over the head with the gospel. And then the rest of the epistle, gospel response. If this is true, this is how you should live. And then when he writes to the pastors, the young pastors, Timothy and Titus, what we've read recently together as a church, how many of you notice he keeps saying, don't get pulled into secondary issues. Don't fight over these weird things, genealogies. Don't argue over X, Y, and Z. That doesn't... Keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing? The gospel. is not just an introduction. So as we close, the gospel is not just information. It's not just instruction. It's not just an introduction. What is it? And the gospel is an invitation. It's an invitation to be changed, to be transformed by an encounter with Jesus. When I think of transformation, I think of caterpillars and butterflies. That's like the most clearest picture from nature, that this fat, pudgy little thing that can't barely move wraps itself into a cocoon and emerges this beautiful butterfly. I wish that would happen to me at some point in my life, that I could wrap myself into my bed and emerge as something more beautiful. But it's, it's a radical transformation. Nobody, has, nobody is confused about a caterpillar and a butterfly. Nobody looks at a caterpillar and goes, is that a butterfly? Nobody looks at a butterfly and goes, I think it's a caterpillar. It's such a clear change. And the transformation that comes through the gospel is such a radical change in our hearts and our lives that, that the gospel describes it as being born again. Jesus said it's new life. You start all over. It's not addition. You don't add Jesus to your life. It's not subtraction. You don't just subtract bad behavior from your life. It's transformation, gospel transformation. And this last verse I want us to see that Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a little bit out of context, but I'll, I'll help it make sense. He says, and we all with unveiled face, he, he's referencing Moses in the Old Testament, one of the leaders of Israel, who in order to see the glory of God had to wear a veil, over, had to cover his face, and then when he came off the mountain, he had to wear a veil over his face because the glory was so bright. But Paul is now saying, we're not under the law anymore. Because of Jesus, we can see God with an unveiled face, so to speak. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed, there's our word, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What do we learn in this verse? And I'm going to summarize it. We're going to close. This morning is really just an introduction, setting us up for the next three weeks, okay? But here's what we learn. Look at this simple truth, that the, the purpose of transformation is to be like Jesus, but the path of transformation is to behold Jesus. The purpose is to be like Jesus, that we would be more and more conformed into his image day after day from glory to glory transformed into his image. But the path is not behavior, the path is not just effort, although there's room, plenty of room for effort, discipline, diligence, and obedience in the Christian faith. It's all necessary. But the path is to behold Jesus, which means to see him. In fact, that word behold actually has a worshipful sort of undertone to it, to gaze upon him and his glory. And as we look at him, 
were changed into his very image. There's something about seeing Jesus, when you see the beauty of Jesus, that it actually has the power to bring that very life into you. And so that's what we're going to talk about for these next three weeks, that the gospel is an invitation to do three things. And I want you to see this. You've seen this out in our lobby up on the wall. This is what we're calling our discipleship path, our discipleship pathway. We believe that the gospel invites us to come and see Jesus. It starts there. That's what we're going to talk about next Sunday. Come and see Jesus. If we don't see Jesus first, nothing else will actually work. Then to connect and be you. Because God is not just saving individuals. He's forming a people. And we've been created to do life together. So there's a place at Trinity for you to come and see Jesus. There's a place at Trinity for you to connect and be you. And then lastly, there's a place at Trinity for you to commit and lead others. And when I say lead others, I'm not talking about formal leadership positions and having titles. I'm talking about leading other people to come and see Jesus. That this is a cycle of as we come and see Jesus and we connect and we become ourselves in community, then how do we commit ourselves to live our lives in such a way that leads others to come and see the beauty of Jesus? Because whatever God has done in you, he wants to do through you. And if it stops in you, then it doesn't have the kingdom impact that God has intended for you. And so you're going to hear all about this over the next three weeks, next week, two weeks. This is actually Mother's Day, but we'll be talking about that in in three weeks. We're going to have shirts available soon with this logo on it for you guys to wear and just as a reminder. But this is going to become the pathway that helps us as a church have a strategy to carry out our mission of making disciples so that we can see gospel transformation. And I can say this for sure, every step by his grace. (laughs) Every step by his grace. Let's pray.